Welcome to All the Things with Monique Dusan from the Center for Biblical Unity and theology mom, Krista Bontrager. And now, here's Krista and Monique. Welcome to Saturday night. This is All the Things. I'm Monique Dusan. And I'm Krista Bontrager. And it's the show where we talk about all the things related to God, life, and the Bible. All right. Now, you didn't say that you were also known as Theology Mom, so I don't know if I'm sitting with somebody new tonight. But <laughs> well, I got um, new glasses. She did get new. Y'all don't let her throw you off. She did get new glasses. <laughs> yes, I like them. My other one's broke. It was sad. Yeah. Yeah, it was. So, I had to get new ones. All right. And helping us on the show tonight and every night is Mr. Wonderful, Bob Bontrager. Hello, and Baby Yoda in the background. Show is not sponsored by Baby Yoda. Please don't censor us, YouTube. (laughs) All right. right. And in the moderators chat box, we have, I saw Jeremy Webb in there. Yes. And I don't know who else I saw. From Chicago. And then we've got uh, Laura Hartley in there helping out tonight. Awesome. What's up, Justin Davis? We see you guys. Hello from Cincinnati. Hello, Diane and Rain from New Mexico. There was somebody watching from the Philippines. Yes. Bianca Carr. Hello from Los Angeles. I love LA. Yes. All right. So let's just jump right in. Well, well, no, we got a little little more house cleaning to do. Oh, I don't. Y'all, I'll be ready to go, but we got all this stuff to do. Okay, keep going. All right. What else? Well, my hair's getting long. <laughs> no, we, no we got house cleaning. Let's All right. Keep so, house cleaning. <laughs> so talking about uh, your new shirt here. That's what I was going to go to, but you said we had house cleaning. Oh, okay. I don't know. You said you were going to get started. I can't even. Y'all, so, I, okay. There have been several people. I'm going to talk a little loud so y'all can hear me. There have been several people who have written in and said I sh- that this shirt reminded them of me. Half holy, half hood. That means pray with me, but don't play with me. And when I saw it, I said, yes and amen. Somebody knows me. So you bought so, it. Yes, because it just describes me so well. But I thought it was funny that it wasn't just like one person who sent it in. It was multiple people who saw this shirt and was like, have you thought about this? Did- Should I be concerned? Only if you play with me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. It makes me a little uncomfortable. All right. Yeah. So, so I don't know. What did you do this week? This week I what got was the big thing. Oh, I got my DNA test back. No, from from not my DNA test. My test from um, Ancestry.com, and I found out that I'm 34 percent Nigerian. All like right. that. I don't know if it's all true, but I hope it is. But I thought that was interesting. And then we. Well, you're 34 percent Nigerian. Yes. And 31 percent from like Cameroon. Okay. Yes. That was that was very interesting. But even better than that is we finished filming the small group curriculum. We did. Yes. Coming soon. It's coming soon. We're so excited. All of the filming is completely done. We are now in the editing process. The book is um, in design now. We have the, the final edits from our editor. So the, the written copy is done. The visual copy is done and they're both in the process of being put together. And so in a couple months, we will have a small group curriculum. We are actually going to do some pre-orders. And so keep an eye out for all of those. Yes. And we will keep you posted. Uh, So exciting times for Monique at the Center for Biblical Unity. And um, well, can we go back to the ancestry thing for a minute? Okay. (laughs) Because I'm curious. Okay. So 
You've always said that you're Haitian. Uh huh. What, so what percentage was Haitian? I didn't. Wasn't on there at all. I felt like I had to ask my mama some questions. I was like, <laughs> what? Wait, wait a minute. Hold on. But yeah. So why it, do you think that is? I think that's be, it's because, um, well, Haiti was um, a slave, like it was an, a, a slave island. And so I don't, I think that the slaves Because your father brought, was from Haiti. Born and raised in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. There's actually um, a town in, on the eastern side of Haiti, I believe, that has our last name and things like that. Like his family was from that village. Um, and so, yes, he was born and raised in Haiti, have the proof of that. But I believe that the slaves that came from there. So when you look at our blood, the majority okay. of Haitian blood probably comes from somewhere in like that Nigeria okay. region. So what percentage was white? Like four percent. Oh, and when you add it all up, because so there was I like was just joking some, around. So there some was Scottish, okay. some like English, Turkish. I don't know something, but <laughs> yes, Turkish. I don't know. It was it was all all you know one percent, one percent, one percent. Oh, okay. Yeah. So are you excited to know now? I am because I feel like you know not only did it tell me the history, like going way back, it it also told me where possibly my family would have come from in entering in Ameri into America as slaves. Okay. And so I was just like, oh, you know, people with this blood or bloodline generally settled here and were in this region. This was a popular so it area. So probably been your mother's side because mm -hmm. your father came from Haiti. So. Yeah, my yeah. father came from Haiti and okay. he came over in the late 70s, very late 70s, 78. Okay. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, my mom's line would have been that potentially Very but that cool. also makes sense because in going back in research that i've done my grandmother's grandmother was in like the carolinas and things like that so i don't know Very it's cool. really cool awesome yes well now you know now i know you guys today we are talking with our cousin miss Allie beth stuckey and i am so excited to have a conversation with her i love her podcast and and just her in general like and you just, were on her podcast i, on her... I looked it up mm -hmm. you were on august 28th mm -hmm. of last year kind of in the height of all of the crazy the aftermath of people trying to make sense of what was happening in our culture so glad to have her come on our show and chop it up with us a little bit yes we're gonna chop it up she um she just says what's like real and what's there i feel like there's not a lot of like wiggle room it's either truth or it's not and yeah. i love that about her so we're gonna talk a little bit about ali beth's book you're not enough and that's okay yes. so i think it's her first book and so if people want to go check out her podcast, it's called Relatable. Yes. And it's kind of similar to what we do here with kind of current events and giving Christian perspectives on the various events of the day. Mm -hmm. And um, she's had on some of the guests that we've had on on our show. Our friend mm -hmm. Sam Say was on her show. Oh, Lisa, the auntie. Yes. Everybody's so. favorite auntie was on there. Yes, I think even Cousin Neil was on there. Yeah. Yeah, so follow her. You can follow her on Twitter. Her twit, her twits, her tweets. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Her tweets are always good and just relevant and yeah. popping. So let's bring her All on. Right, let's get her on. Hello. Hello, hello. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me. I love how you guys call all of your friends cousins. 
Girl, yes, yes, we are I all related. It. it makes you feel so welcome. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, we figure we all go back to Adam and Eve, and so, so we're all cousins. Technically, we are it's all true. Kind of cousins. It's true. Yeah. yeah. So, were you about to say something? No. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, I, I didn't want to cut you off. That's was, okay. Th- this just That's us. right. I'm decentering whiteness over here. I appreciate it. Thank you very no, much. Perfect. I will continue. All right. So, no, you do not have to decenter whiteness on our show. You don't give her a bad impression. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, just... you guys know I know better. <laughs> Bring, bringing the jokes. Don't, don't give people bad impressions. What's going on with this blanket down here? We will talk about that later. That is not for the... <laughs> you see, pardon us, family. Pardon us. Okay. All right. So, so please, uh, let's start. Tell us about yourself. For people who aren't familiar with you. For the 10 people who no, don't know who Like the Ali three Best people who don't know. <laughs> but tell us just about yourself, about your podcast. How did you even get yeah. started with a podcast? Yeah. So like you guys said, my name is Allie Stuckey. I host a podcast called Relatable. Uh, That was, Krista, my first book. You were correct about that. Um, I started my podcast, let's see, at the beginning of 2018. Actually, it's probably been exactly three years this month. I think it was in March that I started it. It started out once a week and it's just grown. Now it's now it's four times a week. Wow. And um, we talk about news, culture, politics, theology from a Christian conservative perspective. And I just had a desire to speak to specifically women, women my age in particular, although there is a range of uh, an age range that listens to the podcast about the craziness that's going on in the world. Because I've just found, at least in my experience, and maybe I just see this because I am a woman, that women, especially in this kind of life stage that I am in, are just so susceptible to worldly lies. And of course, we know that's true of of men too, but I think the emotionalism that we see paired with so many of the mainstream cultural messages, whether it's about sexuality or race, especially appeals to young women and I think sometimes, all the time, uh, all of us, uh, y'all and me included, we just kind of need someone to take a step back and to remind us of what's true. It's so easy for us to get caught up on social media with the latest trend and to kind of latch on to the virtue signaling that says, okay, if I post this black square, if I use the right hashtag, or if I say the right thing about social justice, then I'll be accepted and I'll finally be a good person. Um, and so I really kind of started my podcast out of des- out of a desire to take women out of what I think is a very exhausting world of trying to prove yourself and trying to meet worldly standards while also using forms of Christianese in order to kind of keep your feet in both worlds. Um, and it's just tiring a lot of people. And I think that something that you guys do so well that I hope to do as well is to say, look. God's standards don't change when it comes to culture, when it comes to all of these issues where it seems like all of a sudden things are confusing that weren't confusing five minutes ago. It's still not confusing for the Christian. Um, this is what, you know, God's word says, which I I obviously have still have so much to learn in that area. Um, but this is what's true. Here are the facts about this particular trend that we're hearing about. Here's where we're seeing media bias come through. Um, so that's really what I try to do. On my podcast, um, you know, I, I'm still learning a lot as well. And I know that I'm coming from my own perspective. I am a political conservative. Um, I don't pretend to be moderate. I'm not in the middle, but I do try to inform everything that I think and, and see and explain 
um, through the lens of God's word and hopefully by his grace, that's something that I can accomplish. Yeah, I think I'm so impressed and I'm wondering, and I've wondered about you for a while, like you do such a great job of making connections between current events and the Christian worldview. And it's so needed. And I'm just wondering, like I spent 10 years of my life in seminary and we didn't really work those things out very much in seminary. But I'm just curious, like, how did you come to understand these things that way? Have you always been interested in politics Um, or were there any particular Christian writers or thinkers that helped to shape um, your approach to integrating your your worldview with with the public square? Yeah, I would say for the question of have I always been interested in politics? Yes and no. My parents would probably say yes, because one of my earliest memories and and one of the to them, the funniest memories that they have is that I wouldn't go to sleep on the night of the George Bush Al Gore election. And I was seven, eight years old. And um, I don't know how I knew or why I knew, at least in my mind, that George Bush was supposed to win. But I was very into that. And I was very troubled when I heard that some people didn't vote for George Bush. And so my parents weren't necessarily always talking about politics around the kitchen table. We really weren't. But I guess there was something about it that always kind of interested me, at least in some vague sense. Now, I didn't run for like student body presidents or anything like that. Um, I wasn't someone that was doing, you know, a bunch of political things when I was growing up in high school or even that much in college. It was just something that was kind of always vaguely interesting to me. My parents are Christian conservatives. My dad actually did um, serve as a state representative starting when I was in college and a few years after that. And so I would say yes and no. I've always kind of been interested in politics, but I'm really more interested in the cultural changes that I've seen happen over the past 10 years. And I would say it's probably been over the past six to 10 years that I have really started being engaged. Right after college, um, I graduated from college in 2014. And in 2015, it was the presidential primary with, you know, and then we had Hillary Clinton and we had Donald Trump. And that was the first time a lot of people my age really cared about politics. The first election that I could vote in, I was in college, it was Mitt Romney versus Obama. I don't remember there being any kind of tension on campus about that. Like I had liberal professors. I don't remember them thinking any worse of me for voting Republican. I don't remember feeling uncomfortable, but I felt something different in the 2016 election that people were scared. They were scared to say who they were voting for. They were scared to speak up about conservative values. I lived in Athens, Georgia, which the area in general is a conservative area, not Athens itself. And I just noticed that the students there after I graduated, this is 2015, were scared to talk about being a Christian in some cases. We're scared to talk about being a conservative. We're scared to talk about voting Republican. And that's actually when I started doing what I do now. I was working full-time as a publicist, actually. Um, But with the election going on, I just kind of had this idea one day that I wanted to speak to college students and to young people about the importance of voting, the importance of being involved, the importance of, of, of caring about the changes in our culture. So I first started talking to sororities 
And then that kind of just expanded. I started talking to, you know, local groups and then businesses, companies, organizations, and it just kind of grew. I started a blog based on that. The blog grew. And then I was hired by The Blaze in 2017. And the rest is kind of history. Um, But yeah, it just started with this desire, I guess, to tell young people, hey, culture is changing. And if you're a Christian, like there's reason to be concerned. Um, And, you know, from my perspective, here's what I think we should think about it. And here's what I think we should be saying about it. So um, yeah, I think some of it was my environment. Some of it was just God given. I certainly knew like all the, all the way growing up that I wanted to do something on a stage. I just wanted to, I love public speaking and um, I always wanted to communicate. It's one of the very few things that I enjoy and am am, um, hopefully talented in. And so Uh, I always knew I wanted to do something like this. I just didn't know how, but I guess, you know, there's always a lot to talk about. And so um, I'm glad that God has given me the opportunity to do something that I always wanted to do and that he's given me a lot of material to go on as well. I'm wondering if there are any thinkers that have really shaped how you approach it. Like I know for me, my view of politics and the public square and cultural apologetics and stuff was largely shaped by Francis Schaeffer. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm old. <laughs> and back, that's, you know, back in the late 70s, early 80s. I'm wondering if there's anybody that particularly was was influential in how you approach these questions. So I would say before I started thinking about how I apply these views, how I apply my theological views to politics, um, it was, it wasn't until I was about a junior in high school that I really started actually taking my faith seriously. I went to a Christian school. I grew up going to church, but I had a Bible teacher in high school that really introduced me to kind of the intellectual engagement that can be required of you as a Christian. I had never read C.S. Lewis before. Um, I had never even really thought about Christianity from this kind of intellectual, intelligent perspective. And he was the teacher who, through the Holy Spirit, really excited me in studying the Bible and studying theology. So I would say C.S. Lewis from the top was the first author that really, through mere Christianity and the Screwtape Letters, Great Divorce, Surprised by Joy, those were all these books that I devoured when I was in high school, not realizing that Christianity was also something that was smart, also something that engaged your brain, that helped you answer all of these existential questions that you had kind of been bouncing around in your mind, but maybe were too scared or just didn't have enough information to answer. And I just loved that. There was just something that made my heart beat and things get more exciting for me. Everything I think became more exciting when I started engaging with Christianity and engaging with the Bible in an actual curious, intelligent, intellectual questioning kind of way. And then this might actually surprise you, considering kind of where his um, politics seem to be today. But I would say that I've probably read more Tim Keller books mm-hmm. than any other Christian author's books. Um, and we know that he can be woke on things, but his book that I read in high school, Reason for God, it just kind of ended up being a domino effect for me. He has done a lot of good apologetic work, again, in a way that engaged my mind um, in a way that other teachers didn't. And then 
I was part of that. This was like 2008. And without even realizing it, I very much was in that like young, restless, reformed wave that was like coming up at that time to where the young people who were all of a sudden excited about our faith, we were just devouring John Piper and David Platt and Francis Chan at the time and Matt Chandler at the time and um, all of those teachers. And I was definitely, I don't want to say caught up in that because that sounds negative, but I was in that and I got, uh, instead of just, you know, my basic kids NIV Bible, I got an ESV study Bible. And so during this high school and college time, my faith just totally transformed. It became something that was real, not just something that I had only inherited from my parents. And I can't tell you like the one teacher that necessarily said, okay, now this is how you apply it to politics. I mean, of course, I think uh, they're like Wayne Grudem is an amazing example of someone who does that really well. But I honestly didn't even read his teachings and his understanding of politics according to the Bible or systematic theology until after college. I guess it just kind of intertwined with what my family had taught me, the values I had been growing up with, and this Reformed theology, realizing that I'd become a Reformed Calvinist without even knowing what those two words meant. Um, and it just kind of came together. And then, of course, reading the Reformers, once you realize, oh, like, I'm Reformed and I, yeah, I actually do believe in, in predestination and all these things that you didn't really even know about when you were growing up. You read the reformers and you realize that their spirit for liberty, their spirit against tyranny is so much in line with conservatism, not saying every part of the Republican Party at all, but is so in line with the values of the founding and the values of conservatism. It just all kind of, you know, I think yeah. for a lot of, like for a lot of young Christian conservative reformed people, it all just kind of came together. And it yeah. still does, like it still does. It still excites me about politics and culture and all of that. And I do think that there's a long history of reformed Christians engaging because of that. Well, I think that, yeah, definitely the reformers are, that's a good source. And, you know, that they, they had a, a robust way of trying to integrate um, public life with, with, the historic Christian worldview. I'll let you jump right. in. No, I was actually going to read. There's a question on Facebook that um, I wanted to ask and, oh, yeah. or that you brought up. So yeah, let's go to that really quickly. Kristen, it's on YouTube. YouTube. It says, how and when were you first challenged to define your worldview? Scroll down a little bit. How can we push young people to get to There's. that point? Yes. So there weren't as many, at least when I was, you know, in high school, there weren't as many questions that I think that young people have to ask today. I didn't have to ask. I don't even remember asking the question of is abortion okay or not? I mean, obviously there were people that were pro-choice or even pro-abortion when I was in high school, but it was just kind of something that I felt like I knew. Now, maybe that was a product of the wonderful blessing and privilege of being able to go to a Christian school is that that kind of worldview was just ingrained in every class that we had and in every kind of area that we studied. But I don't remember, maybe not until college or even like the end of college, having to say, okay, why do I believe abortion is wrong? And it certainly hasn't been until the last few years of 
until I've had to answer the question, why do I believe marriage is defined this way? Why do I believe that gender is what it is? I mean, that's been something that you've only had to wrestle with for the past, you know, for the past few years, for the past 15 minutes, it seems like. And so there are a lot bigger questions, more fundamental, basic questions that young people are having to define and, and figure out today, questions that I didn't necessarily had to have to ask. Now, I think that the, the biggest thing that I learned, the most formative thing that I learned and that every person needs to learn, that it seems like so many professing Christians today just don't believe based on the looks of the rest of their worldview is Genesis 1-1. So many issues that we're dealing with today are answered in the, the fact that God created the heavens and the earth. And if he is the creator of the heavens and the earth, he's the authority. He says what is and what isn't, what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's bad, what's male and what's female. When life begins, he answers all of these questions in his creator authority. And I think so many people leave off Genesis 1-1. And then we try to piece our worldview together with a mosaic of some biblical text that we kind of like and then some views from the world that actually seem nicer than what God gives us. Um, and we try to piece it together in this mishmash of hopefully tolerant social justice, loving worldview that ends up actually just being very confusing and doesn't serve us well. Um, and so I know the question was when, I would say that I'm, I'm still figuring out how to answer these very strange questions that I think are so strange that we're even asking like, you know, what is a boy or, or what is a girl? Um, those things are, are still being answered by scripture for me. But that fundamental belief that God created the heavens and the earth. So whatever question that culture has, whatever issue that we're dealing with, I have to go back to that. And I have to trust that God has the authority and God has the clarity to answer these questions for me. Um, and so I don't know if that answers the question, but I will say that it's, it's never too early and it's never too late as a, as a mom. Now I'm realizing just the importance of discipleship and the importance of from the earliest age possible, you know, catechizing your children and making sure they know the answer to these basic questions. My daughter is, she's 19 months um, and she, I, we have this like little catechism that we do and, uh, she, she's only now able to like answer the first question. And the first question is who made you? And the answer is God made you. And she can answer that first question, God. And she might not know what I'm talking about. She might not know what that actually means or signifies yet. But the fact that she knows that basic question that God made you. And I can just hope and pray that the rest of her wisdom flows from that fundamental reality that God made you, that God made the world. He tells you what is and what isn't. Um, I think that's the most we can hope for as parents who are, are teaching our kids. Girl, okay, in black church, we fan you when you say a fire word. Go ahead. That was all kind of fire. I am going to fan you. The family on YouTube has requested that you be fans because that was good. Thank you. Thank you. Go ahead. Go ahead. Thanks. Yes. Thanks. Thanks. 
you now you talking about Genesis one and for Krista, everything comes back to Genesis one. We can talk about yes. heaven and hell, Genesis one. We can talk <laughs> yes. about creation, Genesis one. We talk about sin, Genesis mm-hmm. one. Any it don't matter what. We talk about dominoes, Genesis one. <laughs> all of, all, all roads lead to Genesis one. Wanna talk about human dignity, equality. We gotta have yes. a conversation about Genesis one. Ge- Genesis uh-huh. one, I'm telling you. It don't matter. There's a sale at Macy's, girl, Genesis 1. <laughs> I'd be like, what? Why? How do we get to Genesis 1? And when I was in CRT, everything came back to Genesis 1. I would be like, well, you know, whiteness, Genesis 1. Well, you know, oppression, Genesis 1. And I'm like, how you can yeah. do, can we not talk about Genesis 1 one Genesis time? Like, yeah. What is it with you? You are so strange. Yes. Everything is, everything is Genesis 1. Yes. You, you know there's a Genesis oh, totally 2. Can, can we go to Genesis 2? <laughs> Yeah. All right. Yeah. So now, I want to tell yeah. everyone again about Ali Beth's book, You're Not Enough. But I was going to say, this is a good segue yeah. in to talk about the book because yes. she talked about some of the mixing of the, what we get in culture versus yes. what we take from scripture. Like, I really like this in scripture, but I really like this a little bit more from the culture. And that's kind of what the book is, is talking about. It's like yep. this idea mm-hmm. of, of self-care and self-love because I'm not enough, but it's like, I, I'm not enough. And, you know, so I'm going to self-love or I'm not, and I'm probably doing it a horrible disservice. Um, I'm no, not enough yeah. and, and that's okay. <laughs> but it's like, I need to make myself enough almost. And what I hear you saying in the book is like, no, you're not enough and you'll never be enough because hello, Jesus. Like we all need Jesus in order to get to the place of even thinking that we could somehow be a little bit okay. Like without Jesus and what culture has, has served us. And what I think we're buying in the church is this idea that I can somehow arrive or get to a certain place. I'd I yes. love to hear, because I know that every author, like there's something that sparks them to write their book. And I'd love to hear what that was for you. Like, why did you want to mm-hmm. write a book about not being enough? And yeah. I, I think I know who this book is for, but I would love to hear from you who you think that this book is for. Yes. So I just saw a lot of messages. Honestly, this was about the time that I was starting my podcast, so about three years ago. And I know these messages have been around for a lot longer than that. Um, But this message of self-love that wasn't even just coming from secular sources, because yes, of course, we like to bust the myths that come from secular sources. I think that's important. But I was more troubled that they were coming from these Christian teachers, saying things like, you can't love other people until you love yourself. Or love your neighbor as yourself means that you need to love yourself first. Or part of your sanctification is is self-care and self-love. This kind of pseudo-theology or pseudo-Christianity that was really just a form of these new age self-empowerment mantras that these anti-God spiritual Sherpas were giving people on Instagram. Now so-called Christian teachers were trying to adopt those and it infused Bible verses into them. And I'm like, what is what is going on? And of course, I, I know why it happened, because it's popular. Um, and because the church, especially women's ministry, it seems like has bought this lie that the biggest struggle that women have, that the biggest problem that we face is that we're insecure. 
Like that's our biggest problem. Our biggest problem actually isn't us. Our biggest problem is society. Our biggest problem is men. Our biggest problem is the patriarchy. Actually, it's advertising. Actually, it's capitalism. Actually, it's social media. Actually, it's peer pressure. So these are all of our biggest problems, which are problems that women face. Absolutely. Women probably more than men deal with all those problems. And those things do, can have a tendency to make us feel bad about ourselves. And we can struggle with insecurity in comparison. All of that is true. But until we address the fact that women's main problem is actually the same as men's main problem, that we are dead in our sin apart from Christ, and if we are not saved by Christ, we're destined for hell, then we cannot properly take care of the rest of those problems. So hearing that my biggest problem as a woman is something else outside of me, and that really all I need to do is love myself. Well, you've just robbed me of the eternal privilege of hearing the gospel, Mm -hmm. like the gospel, the thing that I need to hear as a woman who may feel repressed by my insecurity. Maybe I do struggle with self-loathing. Like maybe I can't ever like what I see when I look in the mirror and maybe I struggle with an eating disorder or whatever it is, depression, all these things that are very real issues that men and women deal with, but I would say women deal with in a very special way. Women are held to really difficult standards, it seems like, in the world. If I feel repressed by those things, trapped by those things, the thing that is going to liberate me, the thing that is going to save me from that is not more of me. Like the self can't be both the problem and the solution. So if inside Mm. myself, I am finding all of this insecurity and inadequacy and fear and depression and anxiety and all of these things, the answer to those, the antidote to those things aren't going to also be found inside myself. They're going to be found in something outside of me. And of course, my argument is that it can only be found and defined by our creator. And so Jesus already took care of this. He said that if you want to find your life, you're going to have to lose it. Like if you want, if you want something out of all of this, you're going to have to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And what you actually get out of it is a lot of suffering and a lot of denial and a lot of hardship, but it is eternally worth it. And so I wrote this book for women who have been misled into thinking that the gospel is that you need to love yourself more, that the gospel is that deep down inside you, there's this beautiful goddess that just needs to be unleashed once you stop worrying about what people think of you um that's not the gospel that's not the gospel if you find if you dig deep inside yourself you're not going to find a goddess you're going to find a totally depraved and fickle heart that is absolutely dead in sin apart from christ and so if you want to be liberated by all the things that are weighing you down then you need to meet the one who promises to bear your burdens and it's not glennon doyle it's not Brene brown it's not jim hatmaker it is the god who made you it's the jesus who died for you um and so this book is a hope to kind of remind women that like the gospel is for you theology is for you and we go through five myths in the in the book things that we hear, you're perfect the way you are, define your truth, you're entitled to your dreams, that kind of like self-empowerment, go-getter thing that we hear in, you know, the like boss babe culture online. Um, All of these myths that we hear that sound really good and might even sound like maybe something Jesus would say. And we go through how it actually warps our thinking, not just about God and the gospel, but also it warps our thinking about culture. It warps our thinking about politics. It works are thinking about justice, something that you guys talk about a lot. Um, 
so yeah, that's that's the attempt. That's the attempt that I that I am making with this book to bring people back, to bring women back to what is true. In particular, I would say like moms, young moms who are sucked into this culture of victimhood online. That you're like a victim of motherhood. You're a victim of your husband, and you just need to love yourself and care for yourself more, and you'll be happy. Liberate yourself of those little children that you spawned, and you'll mm. finally be fulfilled. Um, but that's a very so, real, that's a very real dynamic that you see out there for young moms. And I'm thankful yes. to have you articulate that because there is a lot of messaging for young moms today mm-hmm. that I don't think I faced so much mm-hmm. when my kids were small about like that these, these creatures that had come, <laughs> that my husband and I had made that, that these are now almost my oppressors. Um, exactly. and, and I need to wow. find some ways to rid myself of, of the, these, yes. these children and, and my wonderful husband. And, but that messaging is pretty strong. And so I'm, yeah. I feel like mm-hmm. Allie's book really, I, I love what I loved about the book is you really integrate sound theology in it, but through the use of your personal story and your life and, I don't want to give too many spoilers because I really want to encourage people to go buy the book. Oh, we have but, people in the chat who are like, I'm, I just I bought know, it. I'm getting it to give away. Yeah, they're they're buying Aww. them up right now. So, but I think that it's wonderful for, um, especially like for a new believer or a believer who's kind of young in the Lord or hasn't really grown their faith very much. It weaves in a lot of sound theology, but through personal stories. And so it really appeals to mm-hmm. women who consume those types of books about yeah. personal yeah. story so. yeah because it's it's so easy especially when culture pushes like you know Brene Brown I used to love Brene Brown don't judge me when she was a progressive but yeah, but I used to love Brene Brown and um I was listening to you talking with um Elisa Childers I think I think it was Auntie Elisa about Brene Brown and how she <laughs> pops up everywhere and things like that and I was like oh my gosh like I just really realized just how not straight on Brene Brown is, but the messaging that comes across in people like Brene Brown, or I, I haven't read Jen Hatmaker, but the idea of like, there's an inner goddess inside of you. There's a, there's something more inside of you if you just keep going. And But it's an interesting yeah. comment and observation, Allie, that, that inside of us lies both the problem and the solution. And I had never really thought about it mm-hmm. quite that way. That's a very powerful insight um and and way of of stating it i think yeah that's extremely helpful yeah well it's so like the new well let me define let me define my terms first i know that we all like defining our terms yes uh the new age and when i say the new age there's that can be like a very broad umbrella term and there are different parts of it, but I talk about it in my book and define it specifically what I exactly mean by it. But there are different forms of the new age, but all this kind of Eastern mysticism, even forms of personality tests like the Enneagram, they all start with that premise that there is something to be discovered deep down inside you. There is a diamond in the rough that was there perfectly, maybe in a previous life even, depending on how mystic you want to get, or was there when you were born But as soon as you were born, it got corrupted by all of these things, kind of like what we already said. It could be the patriarchy. It could be capitalism. It could be societal expectations. It could be your parents, oppression, whatever it is. 
And what you need to do, what these kind of teachers, self-empowerment teachers tell you to do, which they don't say that they ascribe to the new age, but this is, you know, ancient, ancient Eastern mysticism. They call them ancient paths. Sometimes they'll say ancient paths. Yes. It's this kind of Gnosticism, which means special knowledge. You're going to find this special knowledge, this hidden knowledge. If you dig deep inside yourself and part of that, part of the message that we hear in that encouragement is that you are enough. You just need to dig deep inside of yourself to try to realize that. And then once you manifest that enoughness, once you, once you really manifest that love for yourself and you kind of even name and claim the things that you want, you'll have healthier relationships. You will have the confidence to get the job, to get the raise, to start the business, to buy that car, to accept yourself the way that you are. And whatever you have to give up or put off to the side in that journey to find that beautiful inner goddess that is waiting to come out, whether it's that toxic husband that you're with or that toxic friendship or those kids that are, you know, taking up way too much of your time, everything is worth giving up and worth sacrificing on the altar of self-discovery and self-fulfillment. That is part of the new age. It's been a part of the new age for a very long time. But now it's Eastern mysticism meets Western entrepreneurship, capitalistic social media endeavors. And you get people like Brene Brown, like you get these social media influencers who are giving us a contradictory message, who are saying, yes, you're enough as you are, but you need me and my book to convince you of that. You need me and my book, my 10-step program to show you exactly how to be enough. See, if you were enough as you were, you wouldn't need all of these Instagram influencers and these self-empowerment gurus to tell you that. And so the reality is they know, you know, we're not enough. The, The only difference is, is that you are now going to Glennon Doyle to tell you that you're enough rather than going to the God who made you to tell you who you are. Both of those things that we're searching for our sufficiency somewhere proves that we know that we're not enough. And so it really is the opposite message than what we get from Christianity, this kind of self-empowerment, new age stuff. It's that the solution is inside of you. The problems are somewhere out there. They're outside of you. And they're also like your insecurity or problems inside of you. But Christianity says the problem is you. The problem is you. And the solution is outside of you. The solution is God himself. And I think that's when you think about how much more freeing that is, like it takes the pressure off of you. If I don't have to be my own solution, if I don't have to be my own salvation, if I don't have to be my own sanctification, I don't have to be my own God. I don't have to determine my own truth. I don't have to be perfect the way I am. I don't have to, my, my confidence doesn't have to depend on whether or not I've decided to accept the cellulite in my thighs that day. If, if I can be free of being my own arbiter of truth and my own source of confidence and empowerment. Wow. Like, isn't that much more freeing and much more liberating than the idea that I have to have a certain amount of self-love and self-care and self-empowerment to finally be happy. And so I think that's why so many young women, they follow this stuff and it helps them for a little bit. It does. Like I know people who followed Rachel Hollis, they lost weight. They did start the business. Their life did seem to get better. And then after a few months or after a few years, it's like, wait, how, I thought I found my inner self. I thought I unleashed my inner goddess. Why am I miserable? Why am I, why are my relationships terrible? 
why don't I have that confidence anymore? Yeah, because it's fleeting. It's fleeting. It's like drinking a Diet Coke when you're thirsty. It tastes really good, but you're going to need water at some point. And thankfully, that's what Jesus is. He is the living water. So everything that you are trying and failing to find in other things, trying and failing to find inside yourself, you can find eternally in Christ. And that's the good news. Oh, you get two fans. Girl, I'm just gonna two shake fans. my head. There ain't nothing more. <laughs> There's nothing more to say. I I don't really know. I feel like good night, everybody. That that is like it's awesome because it's true. Like we we this 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 problem is put forth. The problem is out there. Instead of taking the problem and saying, hey, actually. The truth is, is that the problem lives in me. The problem is sin. And in order for me to to receive an answer to the problem and look to God, the answer is I need to look even more inside myself or your your 10 step program. Yeah, because we talk about this so much in the conversation about critical race theory is you have to identify the the problem correctly and Mm -hmm. you have to identify the solution correctly. If you, if you don't, if you're off on one of those, you're ultimately not going to get mm-hmm. to the proper destination. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is just a different version of that yeah. issue is, you know, we have to identify, well, the problem is sin. The problem is not that I am a repressed goddess and I'm not reaching my fullest potential. That's not actually the problem it could be no i'm just playing i'm just playing no, I can't. <laughs> so we're getting a lot of uh comments on youtube well, are you, um, do you have one that you're ready to, to use that why i have a question okay go okay so you brought up this whole like crt and i want to bring up social justice i know it's not exactly a question that, that we said we were going to ask but how do you see this or do you see it at all um this idea of like performance or like self care, self love, like how do you see this conversation playing out in this woke ideology or yeah. this social justice ideology, especially among um, young women? And yeah. yeah, I'm gonna leave it there. Yeah. So in the second myth that we talk about in my book, it's the myth that you determine your own truth. And this idea that um, our highest, our two highest values in what I call the cult of self-affirmation, which is everything that we've been talking about. Um, The two highest values are authenticity and autonomy in this cult of self-affirmation. So everything that you do, everything that you think has to fall under those two categories in this cult of self-affirmation. You have control of your life, autonomy, you um, are yourself, authenticity. And what I talk about in the book is that those two things aren't in themselves bad. We do believe in having a certain amount, even, you know, under God's sovereignty, a certain amount of control in your life, personal responsibility, you know, the freedom to say no to things. We do believe in autonomy. Obviously, we believe that authenticity can be very good. We shouldn't be pretending to have a different personality or have different strengths that we don't have. We live um, as God has created us for his glory. And so, those two things sound good in and of themselves, but if they are not in submission to Christ and his law, they're just excuses to sin. And so we see that manifest itself in a couple of ways. Just for example, when autonomy is your chief value, you see things like the justification of abortion because autonomy, I have my bodily autonomy. It's my body, my choice. 
even if that means killing my unborn child, my autonomy is taken care of, so I've met my chief value. So you already see how that has detrimental effects on other people if autonomy is not subjected to the will of Christ. The same thing is true for something like authenticity. We see that in this whole gender identity movement today. Well, I am just being myself. I am being who I feel. Nancy Piercy is an author who talks a lot about this, how the secular world kind of um, pits the body against the mind and says the mind and how you feel is who you truly are. And so authenticity, when not submitted to God and his order of creation and his authority, it justifies you know, things like saying something that you're not when it comes to gender, for example. And so those are two cultural ways that I see this idea of you being your own God and determining your own truth has an effect not on us, not just individually, but also societally. And I also think that it manifests itself in something like social justice. If we are the determiners of truth and we are the determiners of what is right and what is wrong, then we also get to say what justice is. We also get to say what good and evil are. And uh, the worldly way that we as a society today have decided what justice looks like is this newfangled idea of equity, which means equal outcomes. So no matter who you have to discriminate against, no matter who you have to be partial to, in order to try to achieve some form of equal outcomes among everyone, that is what today's social justice is. Now, that goes against God's definition of justice, which is we've talked about on my podcast, is impartial, it is direct, it is proportional, it is truthful. Social justice is none of those things. It's very partial. It's narrative-driven. It's not truth-driven. It's collective. It's not direct. Um, it, is, uh, it is not God's definition of justice. And I think it comes from, actually, I know it comes from, knowing the history of social justice, knowing the history of critical race theory, which is now a form of social justice, it comes from godless ideologies. It comes from a concerted effort, a direct effort to try to challenge um, the Christian idea of impartiality, the Christian idea of even due process, the Christian idea of inherent equality. I mean, Marx believed, and this all comes from Marx and the Frankfurt School, he believed that religion was the opiate of the masses. And so he actively tried to replace any kind of Christian theology with his own left-wing ideology. And what we're left with is critical theory, standpoint epistemology, uh, queer theory, uh, critical race theory, communism. <laughs> like it all kind of goes together under the same umbrella. And the common thread, I would say, is godlessness. Human beings deciding that we are going to be our own gods. We're going to determine our own truth. It definitely all goes together. Now, I know I'm ranting, but let me say one more thing. Um, one thing that I, I don't think that most Christians who latch on to the kind of social justice CRT that we're seeing today have any idea of what I just said. They would say, I don't know who Karl Marx is. What's the Frankfurt School? I don't ascribe to critical race theory. What's critical race theory? But you can traffic in something without realizing where it comes from. And I think that most of it starts for a lot of well-meaning Christians in it starts in just this kind of guilt trip that we see from the culture that if you don't call yourself actively anti-racist, if you don't read Ibram X. Kendi and Robin DiAngelo and post a black square and talk about systemic racism, then you are just like the Jim Crow Christians of the 1960s. You are just like the slave owning Christians of the 19th century of the 
and of the 18th century. Um, and without even any further thinking, any critical thought at all, any questioning, they just accept it because no one wants to be a racist. So they find themselves, after a matter of time, fully giving in to this idea of critical race theory, divesting of their whiteness, repenting of their whiteness, acknowledging their white privilege, and being convinced that it is a necessary form of sanctification and even a necessary signifier of salvation. Um, so I know that was very long-winded, but that was, there was like, the deep origins of it, and then superficially how I think so many Christian women in particular have latched onto it. But I think it is part of the whole performance culture now mm -hmm. uh, among even Christians of if you're going to be a sincere Christian, if you're going to be yeah. like really all the way born again, you need to do totally. these extra works. And um, there, do the work yeah, is, yes. a, is a phrase. Yeah. 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 But it's, it's, Almost, uh, we we mentioned on the show last week that there was an Anglican church that they were uh, the their um, bishop was encouraging them to give up their whiteness for for Lent, and they were having all of these conversations at their parish about how to reduce their whiteness and and everything. And I watched the sermon and a, a couple of the midweek conversations. I'm like, wow, I'm not sure that Jesus's death is actually enough for me. You know, that's right. this is what this kind of thinking leads to. And it does exactly. become this kind of baptized, peculiar works oriented theology. And it can be yeah. extremely well-meaning, but it also can become very life depleting if you don't if you don't have your theology straight and it, it can really yeah. hijack things. It can. And I think that's why we call it Jesus plus because it always has to be, there always is something else, another work that you have to continue to do. Okay. Um, were you going to go to a comment? Yeah. I wanted to um, say something on, well, first of all, a couple of comments have come in. Laura Hartley says, this is the book the moms groups need to read. That's a great, comment. Um, that's something to think about. Um, there was a similar comment um, up a little bit that says from somebody, Kate, who says she's read the book twice already and Aww. is going through it with a few of her older teen girls at her church. And it's Aww, really led to a you. lot of great discussions. So oh, good. good. That, well, thank you all so much. Yeah, that's a great way to use Ali Beth's content to yeah. help reach young people um, some people on the chat are going to Amazon to buy it, to give it away to some people in their life. So that's fantastic. Um, Jeremy has a question. Yeah, Jer our friend so, Jeremy has a question. Says, I wonder what happens to people who try these self-help books, but they don't work. What happens when they don't bring lasting happiness? Yeah, I think for a lot of them, well, uh, oh, that's a lot of them. I would say that's a lot of what makes up the messages that I receive about about my book is that either they realized a long time ago that that wasn't going to help them. They repented, they came to the Lord, and then they read my book. Some people, thankfully, by the grace of God, they read my book. They didn't realize they were sucked into that. And they were like, oh my gosh, I see how this is incongruent uh, with Christianity. And so thankfully, I think that the Lord wakes a lot of people up. And once you, once you get to the end of yourself, like say you're done with your self-discovery journey, you've dug around, like you've divested of your whiteness, you've taken off the patriarchy, you have, you know, 
like ended your relationship with all those toxic people. You've invested in the self-love and self-care. You've started the business. You've lost the weight. You've done all the things. And then you're still not happy. I think that that in a very real and very devastating way for a lot of people shows you your finiteness, shows you your fallibility. If all this time, like it's, it's like if someone told you, look, here's a map, here's the X where the treasure is, you're going to find treasure. And then you get there and there's nothing like, it's just rot. Like there's nothing in this place where you were told to find treasure. You're going to be super disappointed. And I think that's what happens for all of these women who are looking to find an inner goddess inside themselves. I think that it shows them how much they've been misled and hopefully by the grace of God, they turn a different direction towards him. Now, there are millions and millions and millions of women who are convinced in the same way that CRT tells you that the work of anti-racism is never done. These women are also told that the road to self-discovery and to self-fulfillment is never done. So they keep on buying the next book, they get the next program, they let go of the next toxic relationship, they repeat the mantras every morning, they know it's a cycle, they're on the hamster wheel, but they're not gonna get off. And so, and if they don't know God, and this is the only form of so-called religion that they have, they might hang on to it. Um, It's just like any other false religion. You just keep hanging on in the hopes that it's one day going to meet your needs. But I really do think, I'm just presuming this, but I just think a lot of these women still wake up at night and say, you know what, my still my biggest questions aren't answered. Why am I here? <laughs> what am I doing? Like, what's my purpose? Is there not anything bigger than me? Like, is there not something more I can do that's outside of myself? And I just pray that the Holy Spirit would use this kinds of questions to lead them to their creator. But yeah, so I think a lot of them find a new way or a lot of them keep wallowing in that kind of misery. That's really good. Um, we're going to read a couple more comments here and have you interact with those if that's okay. Um, yeah. Alyssa has a very thoughtful comment. She says, men struggle with being insecure too. Uh, I read the blurb for the book. It's very geared toward women. Is there a similar book toward men? Or, I mean, maybe I could just add to that a question of, you know, have you had feedback from men reading the book? Yeah, so it is a book that's geared toward women, mostly because I'm a woman. And um, in the hopes of using my own experiences to be able to relate to people, I did, you know, gear it towards women, obviously. It's a pink book. Um, And so it is definitely for that particular audience. I have gotten this question a lot, though. And that is, is there a similar book for men? I don't personally know of any. I think that there should be. And I actually talked to someone. What if I like helped like kind of, or like if I could find a guy, a a great guy who could author the book and kind of help them structure it. And then they use their own experiences. Um, Yes, I think that that would be extremely edifying. It would need to be different though, because men are targeted by the same kinds of people with the same kind of literature in the same kind of way. I don't know that they're necessarily the target of, you know, the self-love, self-care stuff, but that doesn't mean that they're not getting false teachings from culture. They are, Um, but you know, it's just a little bit different. So we would need someone who really kind of knows that and, and sees like how men are influenced in that way, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's good. Um, 
a question that, you know, I think um, would be worth reflecting on as we kind of wind down here is, is thinking about a biblical perspective of self-care, you know, and how that transforms, is transformed by our relationship with God. Like, what could that look like? Because yeah. if as a, to an outsider, it could sound like the Christian position is just self being self demeaning. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so how, how could we look at that issue um, from a distinctly uh, biblical, biblical point of view? Right. Yes. That's something that we talk a lot about in the book. Um, is that this is not a book about why we should hate ourselves. This is not a book about self-loathing. This is a book about being free from the burden of constantly thinking about what we think of us and resting and what God thinks of us who doesn't change. What we think of us is so ever-changing. Whether we are, it's, it's really a pendulum. We're either self-love and self-adoration one day or the next day, depending on our circumstances, depending on our mood, depending on what someone else said about, about us, depending on our performance, we may be self-loathing. So my book is not about, okay, I want you to swing from the self-love side of the pendulum to the self-loathing side of the pendulum. It's let's get off the pendulum, guys. Like it's so exhausting to swing back and forth between those two things. It's so much more freeing to say, you know what? No matter what my feelings are, because my feelings about myself do change. They do. They change all the time. Other people's feelings about me change all the time. But what God says about me and what God feels about me doesn't change. And my identity in Christ doesn't change. There's not like a, a better self, a self-improved self and a bad self. There's an old self and a new self. I'm in the new self because of Christ. And so I don't have to worry about all of this advice coming from these self-help gurus because Jesus says who I am and that doesn't change. And the Bible also talks about in Philippians that it is God who works in us both to will and to work for his good purpose. So even my sanctification, yes, of course, it requires active obedience, but the Holy Spirit is doing that work in me. And so while the social justice, CRT world, anti-racism world is telling you, do better, do the work, the Holy Spirit says it is God who works in you both to will and to work for your good purpose. And Come so on. I'm just saying that we get off the pendulum, we get off the hamster wheel altogether of what we think about us, what the world thinks about us. And we rest in the fact that as Hebrews 13, eight says, God, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he says, not just who he is and what is in general, but also who you are. So that means in terms of self-care, in terms of what we think about ourselves, it's not that we can't go get our nails done. It's not that we don't need to rest. It's not that we don't need as moms to like, have our husbands put the kids down one night so we can like go out to eat with our friends. It's not saying that we should avoid those things and we should just continually be this like martyr and sackcloth and ashes. That's not at all what it's about. It's that you're taking care of yourself. I don't even know if I like that phrase, but your rest, I'll say. The rest and rejuvenation that you need because you're a finite human being comes from a place of knowing who your shepherd is, knowing who your caretaker is, and as, uh, is it second or first Corinthians? Uh, I should probably know that reference, but it's the, if we're a Christian, our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. So we are to glorify God with our bodies. Part of that is, is we see in the creation account, a part of that is rest. Part of that is rejuvenation. But again, that comes 
from a desire to glorify God, not because we deserve a break because our inner goddess demands it. And so it's not about not caring for yourself. It's not about not resting. It's not about hating yourself. It's about knowing who you are in Christ and why we do the things that we do. Like why we rest, why we don't hate ourselves. Like why we're not so self-deprecating and self-demeaning and self-loathing. Where does that come from? It comes from who Christ is, who he, who he says he is and who he says that you are. So that is kind of what changes everything from a motivation of selfishness and self-service to a place of wanting to glorify God in everything we do, whether it's in rest or activity. Mm. Yeah, that's really good. I'm sorry. I was putting up a blanket. I I think that (laughs) (laughs) it, don't judge me in rest or (laughs) activity. I love how you said that, that, there is, there is like, he is present and how we move forward and, and what we do to glorify him in rest or activity that is like, there's something that just, I don't know. I don't have the word for it, but it, it like, it strikes me as a new way of thinking about like, when I talk about, well, I need, I need a self-care day. Cause I mean, I think you, you guys talk about moms a lot and, you know, wives and things like that, but you know, single people get this messaging too, you know, Mm -hmm. like this, this performance messaging. And then, you know, you, you strive and you go and you go and then it's like, well, I need a self-care day or we call it mental health day or, you know, whatever to be able to, to rest and rejuvenate. And, um, but it is from this, this thing of, of, you know, promoting the self-care. And I I would say like the 10 steps that that people send forward to, you know, how can you better yourself and do all of these things? And part of that is performing. So yeah, I don't know. Just- It's good. Yeah. So once again, we want to encourage everyone, family, go support Ali Beth's book. You are, you're not enough and that's okay. It's a great book to pass along to a young woman in your life. Maybe consider doing it uh, if you're a high school um, small group leader. Do it with your girls. Uh, Moms groups, uh, help them engage in thoughtful conversations. This is a great way to be part of the solution um, if you have concerns about the kinds of messaging that the young women in your life is are getting. Yes, and to get them on the right track early yes. because you can be guaranteed that if they didn't get it in high school, they will definitely see it in college. That's right. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Allie, for being with us. We really appreciate thank it. You. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks right. for having me. Thanks. Right. Bye. Bye. Allie Best Stucky, ladies and gentlemen. That was so good. Whether in rest or activity. Yeah. Yes. That was good. Just, something about that just, yeah. Kind of sticks with that'll me. stick with you. All right, you ready for for the second part of the show? Yeah, or? yeah, well, let's do it. All right. Well, um, we got some. Uh, we got a little bit of house cleaning to do here. We want to talk to you about our friends at Impact Three Hundred and Sixty, and they are sponsoring this episode yes. or, of All the Things. And we will be going there in July to speak. And this is a wonderful ministry that might be a partner for your family. If you have teenagers in your family, they have various programs for high schoolers. Uh, They have a gap year program. They have a summer camp program. So we're going to watch a quick video from our friends at Impact 360. Change isn't going to come just because you want it to. Change comes because you are intentionally taking steps to making that change. I aspire to be someone who continues 
to build bridges with other cultures and to cultivate a community that's healthy and honoring to the Lord and life-giving. Now after the program, I feel like I know what my purpose is and I know what I want to do going out into the world and how to not have this time to step back and just kind of be patient and be still and just listen. I don't think I would have had that same clarity. In this world, it's kind of like in a scream contest. Who can scream the loudest and who's going to listen to that person yelling the loudest? And that person should be God, but he's not yelling, he's calling us. My hope going forward to interact with culture is to tell people like, hey, like, be still, listen to this guy is calling you, he's calling you home. We want to give a big shout out and thank you to Impact 360. If you think that Impact 360 might be a, a opportunity for your teen, go on their website, fill out the application. You can use the code, um, all the things, and have the application fee waived. Yes. And uh, I know we talked to them this week. They still have spaces for men. So if you have a teenage uh, if you have a teenage guy in your house, they still have openings. If you have a gal in your house, you're on the waiting list. Yes. So now there's that's the, for the for, gap year for the program. Gap year, yes. Yeah. There are some. There's a comment in the YouTube. Okay. That I want to go to, and I'm gonna start. It's a string of comments. I'm just trying to see where if I could find mm-hmm, if I could see it at the beginning. Um, Angie says systemic racism has been under the surface for so long. It is finally coming to the surface and I am so thankful. I am white and I do feel that there is white privilege, but it is not about guilt. It is about understanding where the white privilege is so we can overturn it and help those who have had to bear the brunt of generational racism to have a better choice. Chance. Chance. Sorry. Um, and then it says, she says, a better chance in the world, it is about loving others. And the gospel is meant to be about loving others. But unfortunately, many Christians think it is just about what we believe. The entire gospel is about love, God's love for us and us loving one another. I'm trying to see if I, there was any more. Um... Okay, and then there's there's some back and forth and things yeah. like that. Uh, okay, but I think I got... See, black privilege is not a major issue currently because black people did not majorly oppress white people in this country and force them into slavery. I'm not saying black people are perfect. I could disagree. No, I'm just playing. Um, no, 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 no. Uh, you know, I, I wanted to address this comment because I think systemic racism is, and first of all, you can go and see a, a past episode that we did with Dr. Pat Sawyer on systemic racism. One of the things with systemic racism is that it's hard, to, it, not hard to define, but many people define it in many different ways. And so in looking at systemic racism, it's, it's something that we need to clearly define. Like, are we talking about something that's codified into law? Are we talking about something that is like a system at a restaurant? So I go into a restaurant and, um, you know, I'm not treated the same because I have a different color skin. So let's than break down. Else. Let's break down Angie's comment mm-hmm. bit by bit. So she says systemic racism has been under the surface for so long. Well, that's what I'm saying. And, like, if we don't first define what we're talking right. about, how do we know what's under the surface? Exactly. And so to say it's under the surface, then you have to break that down. And what does that mean? Does that mean like 
Will we still have laws in our country? That's what that, I'm saying. That, we, if that we don't know. Promote systemic yes. racism. Are we talking about practices and culture? So that would have to be defined. We can't just assume that we know what we're talking well, about. I, I think I can agree with her that at one time, you know, there were things on the law books sure. that were issues of systemic racism. I think we would be hard pressed today to find systemic racism on the law books. In fact, you could make the argument that there's a growing body of push to actually disadvantage certain people mm-hmm. based on their ethnicity, namely if they have less melanin. Yeah. That those are going to be new systems that are going to come into place, um, you know, to to disadvantage certain people yes. based on skin color. Um and I don't I don't think that it's finally coming to the surface, actually. I actually think that the issues of systemic racism have been prevalent and on the surface for a very long time. And this is why we saw the civil rights movement. And this is been, why we've, we've been in that conversation for a while. For, we've overturned laws. This is why even affirmative action was put into place was because these things were at a surface level where people began to speak up and speak out and say, hey, look, this is not OK. Now, for a very very long time, I will agree with her, for a very long time, America did have systems in place that were on like the books that was like, no, nah, this this is a system and we're going to go ahead and, and make it a law and that's OK. Yeah. But I would I wouldn't I, I would have to push back on that and say that, you know, to say that to say that it's finally coming to the surface isn't actually accurate. I would say that it's been at the surface. Now, um, the second part of her, the sentence there is I am white. I do feel there is white privilege. Now, mm-hmm. there's another term that we would have to define because that's actually quite a technical term Mm -hmm. and some people use it in a like broad sense some people use it in the technical sense Mm -hmm. so we would have to to understand that because there is a a version of white privilege that says you know that you can never get rid of your whiteness Mm -hmm. you can never be rid of that privilege Mm -hmm. I don't know what you're doing. I'm waiting for you to finish. Sorry. That's all. I was just just waiting my turn. I'll just sit back. Sitting here. Um, Yes. Now, I think that white privilege is is an issue of several things. But when we talk about white privilege, are we talking about in every structure across America? Because that is how many people who uphold CRT view white privilege, that it is upheld. Like there's a certain set of privileges given only to white people in every sector of of America, of American system. So in the banking system, in the judicial system, in whatever system there is in America, white people have a certain set of like normative privileges that I don't. Now, to me, I think you're hard pressed to find that because if that's true, how do I ever get a loan? But I have. You know, so I I don't know that we can say 100 percent of the time with 100 percent certainty, this always happens. What I think it would be a a much more appropriate way to approach the situation would be to say, you know, when I interact with some people with who who participate in this certain sin. But again, when you talk about systemic racism, you talk about things that are codified into law or you can talk about things that are issues of people's heart and and sin like things that that come up because of sin not necessarily because of law so 
And, uh, Angie responds, systemic racism has to do with policies, for example, and laws. So it's way at the bottom, Bob. Uh, for example, in laws funding, for, for example, that get funneled more to some people groups than to other groups. Um, so you I would have see that Sorry. it's it's at the bottom. It's at, I'm, out, I'm already at the bottom. Yeah. Okay. Systemic racism uh-huh. has to do with policies. Do you see that? Uh huh. So what would be an example, Angie, of a law that's currently on the books that disadvantages people of color? Yeah, I, I just I think that, you know, coming from coming from a social service background, coming from a background of grants and government money and things like that, I see and have seen money and where it gets funneled to. So homeless monies, there's there's money that comes down from HUD every year um, to work with the homeless or to work with low income, to work in, in areas that have been like formerly redlined areas that where we see because of a systemic issue, this area still has certain issues at play. But that doesn't mean that... Um, that there aren't there aren't monies going to those areas. There is money going there. I think that we would be hard pressed to say that you know money isn't going there. I, I what would be an I example, Angie, yeah. of funding that need to look that get is getting funneled to white people as an example of a law? Like what would be an example of that? Um. Okay, sorry, that's Jeremy's. Um, I'm trying to like read all the comments. Angie said the civil rights movement brought some things to the surface. The current movement is bringing a new level of racial issues to the surface. Okay, what would those issues be exactly? What would be an example that you would see as being a, a, a systemic you, racism? This this probably ain't gonna come out right, and I ask for forgiveness already but there's there's a book and i don't even know the author's name but the the author entitled the book um it's like please leave us alone please stop helping us. please stop helping us that's the name of the book google it get on amazon and read this book um and because he talks about white liberals who and i'm not saying you are a white liberal i'm not saying that at all like you I'm, i'm not defining you what i am saying is that there is a messaging going down right now in in American culture and a lot of left wing circles, a lot of CRT circles. And it's like, we need to to make sure that we give them X, Y, Z. We need to make sure that we lower the bar so that they can climb up. Please stop helping us. This is not helpful. This it's not helpful to to have a system of affirmative action. Now, I'm not saying that affirmative action was never helpful, but it's not helpful to have a system of affirmative action that continues to allow black people or or low income people into Ivy League schools who may not be prepared. See, there are there are many more things that we should be talking about before we get to equity of outcomes. There is a lot of things that we should be talking about before we start to talk about the systems, because before there's a system, there's my choice. There is a a thing of me choosing what I'm going to do and how I'm going to participate in life. And so when we talk about annihilating all of these systems, if you aren't clear on what you're talking about, you will be advancing systems that actually disadvantage people of color. So while we want to talk about systems of oppression and all these things, what we need to be doing is talking about systems of abortion. 
Angie, you're you're citing the example of when black schools were not up to par. Um, or one example of the past is when they tried to integrate schools. We're asking you for a present day yeah. example of systemic racism that's in the law because that disadvantages people of color or prevents them from getting grant money. Because that's the example that you raised. So I'm asking you for a tangible example of that. Now, what I would say, I do agree that they're like not not integrating schools and the fight that came from people. Um, that would be a past example. Yes, yeah. it was a past example. And it was real. I am not a denier of systemic racism. Right. I also think that there are people currently serving in systems within America that create issues for people. So there are people who serve in different areas within the in different American systems that will disadvantage white people. There were there are people who are like, I ain't gonna treat her, you know, well, she ain't gonna get she ain't gonna get along today. I'm gonna turn down everybody who comes my way because that's a heart issue. And that heart issue, when I collude with my friends, can become a system. But I, I think we're hard pressed to see like something that's codified into law that we're saying th- these things. Yeah, currently are still systems meant to oppress people. And I could be wrong. I'm going to go ahead and put that. Well, that's why we're asking but for an example. Yeah. Yeah. Just give us the example um, of where you've seen that today. Now, let's talk about this issue of white privilege, black privilege. Um, go ahead. She's reading the uh, comments here. So. Go ahead. Do we want to talk about any contextual issues there of white privilege versus black privilege or what the technical term means? Privilege is privilege. Yeah. I think that personally, I think. Having two parents is is a a form of privilege. Yeah. But what we don't understand is that when we use these terms, these very technical terms, and and again, white privilege, it's just saying that there's a set of um, normative privileges within society that are um, given to white people simply because they're white. That means that if it's in every system across the board, everywhere, then everyone must be participating within that system. That means there's no one righteous anywhere. I don't know that I believe that. Like, I, I think that I would need some some hard proof on that. Um, and black privilege is a thing. There are places that I can go that Krista just can't. We tried this out. <laughs> there, there really are places that I can go and I don't worry about going there. And I wouldn't send Krista by herself. That's... That's just life because of the sinfulness of man's heart. But what we must be careful of in using these terms and be, and adopting these terms, especially things like privilege, is Christian privilege. Google Christian privilege. It's a thing. There is a, um, a growing thought process in culture right now of how do we get rid of Christian privilege? So Christians believing that their way is the only way. Well, the word says that I am the way, the truth and the life. So there is no other way. But when you believe that you can't get to, to God by Mohammed, by Buddha or by, you know, anything else that creates a form of privilege. And how do we, um, get rid of the, the hegemony that, Christian privilege can create. So uh, interesting comment that Jeremy's making. He's asking Angie, is it systemic racism when Harvard excludes qualified Asians in favor of black and Latino applicants? If those black and Latino students, are they participating in systemic racism? 
And see, people would say no because they're trying to reverse the wrong that from, you know, when Ivy League schools kept black people out. But that's whether when no matter what they're trying to do, I can care less what you're trying to do. But the reality is, is that you're participating in partiality, which is a an, an ism like it's a it's a it's a way of. Yeah. Race. It's it's racism. Well, it's and it goes against more importantly than it being an ism, which to me is not a compelling argument at all. It's, well, it's, I'm just answering the question to I know, this. But it goes against God's God's standards. That's the issue. Yes. It's not that it's an ism. It's that it goes against God's standards, which God's standards of justice are that we, as Ali Beth said earlier, as they, they have direct impact on the individual. So it doesn't help to try to right past wrongs by disadvantaging qualified Asian or white students today to somehow make up for something in the past. That doesn't jive with how God sets up justice. Mm -hmm. That is a worldly form of justice. Philip on Facebook says how Alabama schools are funded would be an example. I believe he's he's citing an example of systemic racism. I am not familiar with Alabama um, schools and how they're funded. But what I will say is that if Alabama schools are funded in a way that... um, promote you know whites over blacks or blacks over whites or whatever and that is a system is that not a micro system in in contrast to when we look at the american education system that still does not mean that every that that the entire education system in america is corrupt because it would need to be corrupt across the board this is this is what i'm saying about systems and trying to understand he gives a um, an explanation. If you scroll down a little bit, it says the entire, uh, yeah, on Facebook, CFBU, the entire legal structure of Alabama. You have to go up, Bob. Uh, oh, I just lost it. The entire legal structure of Alabama flows from a 1901 constitution that was explicitly written to enshrine white supremacy. So how Alabama power is structured, how taxation works is all rooted for that purpose. I don't know anything about this. I don't either. But what I would say then, and just taking taking you at face value, Philip, if that is true, then I would say that Christians have an opportunity to use their voice, their vote, and their dollar to speak into that system to um, get things onto law that that ratify that or to, that get new laws in place because. We also like I don't just fight for the Christian. I fight for the image bearer as well, because that is God's justice standard. God doesn't say just treat the people justly who reflect Christ. No, we we use God's justice standards in relation to how we treat all people. So back to YouTube. Angie's got a couple of new comments there. If you go back to YouTube. Yeah. Jeremy, well, it depends on things such as historic reasons on why certain people groups have been given favor or not. We would give a handicapped person certain graces, for example. So and then so because of historic trauma against black people, the loving thing to do would be to figure out how to help them come up to par, for example, by being more easily to go to college. So this is back to your Thing before of lowering standards for mm-hmm. black students that's not is, love. is that's actually love that's not love i'm sorry it's not i it, it's not and i am one of the first to remind everybody that america has had a very racist system 
I, I don't not trying to code it, nothing like that, but to to just lower the standard, you know, to say, well, you don't have to work as hard. What what service is that doing for anyone? You know, I, I just, I personally don't believe it. I don't think that it's a scriptural precedent. Well, the scriptural it, standard is that you evaluate everyone by the same criteria. So again, we're getting back to a, a scriptural standard of justice. So when you have unequal, what, what scripture calls unequal weights and measures, that becomes problematic. So if we're going to have a conversation, Angie, about love, we have to define that biblically. Love can't just be what seems loving to us. Um, it has to be based on what scripture says is love. And to get that, we have to look in in God's law. And, and it has quite a lot to say about evaluating people differently. We are not to favor the rich or the poor. We have the same st- standard for everybody. So go ahead. I was going to also so mention like, you know, there there also is something to be said about not not lumping everyone in the same basket, not lumping everyone in the same group. Just because I'm black may not mean that I need to have a handout well, or a hand up. That's Zachary's you know, comment. Like, he says, I'd be leery of assuming people of color aren't capable. That seems demeaning. It, it, it really is. You know, we there's something again, that book, please stop helping us. There are so many people who want to use their voice to speak into issues of black America and they really have no clue. Like they just don't. And that might be a hard word. But if we really and this this is nothing to do with scripture, y'all. But if we really wanted to to speak into black America, where's the black agenda? Like, what are we doing as black people here in the States? You know, what, what where are we talking about not just abortion, but where are we talking about marriage and not not fornicating and sleeping outside of marriage? Where are we talking about? You don't need to put all these substances in your body. Where are we talking about? You know, this is how you save. This is how you buy a house. This is how you where is the black church? And 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 I'm not a proponent for the black church. But when you go into an inner city, there's a church on every corner. Many are closed. Many got six people. What are we doing? doing to be able to really enrich the black community people want to pass policies and laws we've had we've had policies and laws since mlk the the great society yes lbj we have had these policies and laws and yet what do you see when you look statistically we are no longer 13 percent. we are now 12 percent. i would say that i could blame the policies and laws there is there's a problem here and i think people want to to say, well, it's the policies and the laws, and it's really not. It's a sin issue. We need to start talking with not just black people. We can talk with, with everyone about the issue of sin and how we are continuing to promote sin. And a lot of these laws and policies that we want to throw at people to solve their problem, to make their life a utopia, is really just another version of sin washed over. Uh, Angie says uh, she's made a comment comparing black people to handicapped people. Uh, We wouldn't ask a handicapped person to run a race in the same way we would people who aren't handicapped. Well, I'm not sure that that's a compelling analogy, uh, Angie, with all due respect, um, with the strength of your argument, when you're making an argument from an analogy has to be um, comparing two things that are definitely similar by comparing a. No, No, hold on. Sorry. Here's the thing is that black people are not handicapped. I know. That's what I was going to say. The whole thing is that black people are not handicapped. And this is exactly what I'm saying about please stop helping us. 
Because when you decide to help us, what you do is you coddle and you say, well, you really can't make it. And that's a mentality that goes against the word of God. So when when you say, well, I compare them to the hand. Why are you compare me to somebody who's handy? And there's oh, nothing saying, wrong with handicapped people. Like, says, I'm not saying that I'm using that comparison as a handicap of circumstances. But you're you're but, making a wide assumption about all black people being a certain way. And that is also not helpful. There are many black people who have ascended to the middle class and upper class and are quite wealthy. And so you are making quite a blanket statement which is in itself problematic mm-hmm. because it 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 would be not terribly different than saying well all black people are thieves <laughs> or all black people are violent criminals because you know statistically some percentage of them are rather we have to be more nuanced and careful in how we talk about these things we don't want to disadvantage one group simply based on their skin color or advantage an entire group based on their skin color because that doesn't look at them as individuals um, and that is not according to ju- God's justice standards. I would like to gently um, encourage you, Angie, to, to you seem to have been very influenced by sociology and these terms and I'm, I'm just wondering how much you've, you've given some careful attention to the justice standards of scripture and understand the justice stance. laws of man. Yeah. yeah. Now, Philip has a, a comment on Facebook and it, he says one in seven people on Alabama's death death's row have been freed and every and I'm sorry, and other very problematic convictions led to people dying. One such went out last week. We actually did a podcast about this last year. Um, and I don't remember what it's called, but we do know that like the death penalty is something that I believe Christians should be using their voice into. Um, so I would, I lean that more to be a system to, yeah, because, because there are many people on death row and I, we don't have time to get into all of this, but Philip, I do agree that we need to have, especially more Christians. You, why are we not using our voice in the public square for the benefit of image bearers? People should not die on death row because of convictions that are, um, you know, like improperly investigated and things like that. Angie says, yes, there are exceptional black people who have risen above their circumstances. And that's definitely possible, but it is harder and not something we should just expect of everyone. Well, I that, disagree. completely. That, I, I, Angie, sorry. with all due respect, the black people on the stream are taking a, you know, some serious um, difference of opinion with you on your statements about them. And I would like to gently admonish you that you are, you're thinking about black people in a way that is actually not helpful and possibly, possibly a little racist. Um, So we appreciate the engagement. You stay in the conversation and I think it's awesome and I want to encourage you, but, but it's not helpful to, to make these blanket statements about, about black people and everyone has hard situations they have to overcome. All of us have difficulties in our life that we have to overcome. All of us have to do that, that, that things that are challenges in our lives. And there are many resources available 
that people can avail themselves of. I just think, you know, I don't know if you've adopted a critical race theory worldview. I have no idea, you know, who you are. But when I think about some of the statements that you're making, it does sound like more from that, like social justice or critical race theory bend. And what I think of is the fact that truly with things like interest convergence or, um, you know, whiteness or, you know, some of like white supremacy and things like that, like, what you're saying is that that we should we should you know completely make all of these systems um easy for black people because they've had a hard way of life but something like entrance convergence would say that you know well racism will never truly be ended until it's to the benefit of white people but it'll never truly be to the benefit of white people so how far do we juggle this game how far do we lower the bar for black people in a race or in a system that will never benefit us anyway like do we just make everything free for black people we shouldn't have to work for anything like, or, you know, should, how would that work? Yeah. Yeah. How does it, how does it work out when one, one tenet of CRT says that only when there's a benefit for white people, will racism ever truly end? You know, I just, I don't see it. I don't, I don't see the, the coming together, you know, just merely from a, a sociological bend. I don't see it coming together. Now, when we look at scripture, I think that racism will always be here, not because white people are here, but because sin is here because of my human heart, my heart that can hold bias and prejudice and things like that. And so, you know, I appreciate the conversation. I definitely push back. I definitely feel like um, there's a lot to to learn on both sides. You know, I have a lot to learn. And I would say that, you know, there's a lot of conversation and, and room for growth, you know, on your side as well. I, I think Angie's comment, she says, God calls us to care for the downtrodden, all the biblical prophets under God's direction, called the people to care about the poor and the downtrodden. I want to encourage you to check out a podcast series that Monique and I did on the book of Amos where we tackled this question in quite a lot of detail. And I want to encourage you and to understand something about how scripture works. Uh, Yes, the prophets did talk a lot about caring for the poor. This was a deep sin in Israel's history. But we don't get the definitions of how to care for the poor from our culture. Mm -hmm. We get the definitions and instructions for how to care for the poor, actually not from the prophets, it, but it's from the law. So you got to go look in the books like Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. These are the laws that tell us God's plan for helping the poor. And many things that our culture are, is advancing right now to help the poor is some of it is compatible with God's justice standards, but a lot of it is not. And so I want to encourage you, yes, The prophets do give that admonition to Israel, but there's a context that has to be appreciated there of what the specific issues were that were in view and to have a more nuanced understanding of biblical justice. Biblical justice and a biblical, you know, view of love, because a lot of times I think what what social justice warriors want to put out and what a lot of, you know, lawmakers want to put out is not God's definition of love. I think we see God's definition. Look at this of love back in Genesis, Uh, you know, um, how he treated Adam and Eve before the fall and after, you know, there were things that are implemented in the book of Genesis before the fall, things like work, 
And so because God is love, I have to believe that there is something loving also about work. But when you strip work from someone to just to lower the bar because they may have had a hard chip in life, um, you know, how are we loving them? And I'm not saying that we should, you know, continue with racism and, you know, make sure. things so that black people can't get into college. No, right. I'm not saying that. But, but just have equal standards for there everybody. There should be equal standards. Yeah. So. And I want right. to, there was a comment you made earlier, Angie. I think you might not have a, a proper understanding of the gospel. Um, and it's too far back for me to scroll. Mm-hmm. But um, I think you might be confusing law and gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, Because loving our neighbor is actually not the gospel. Um, Loving uh, God and the two great commandments of love God and love neighbor, those are the law. Now, the law cannot save us. The law reveals our sins. Mm -hmm. It reveals God's holiness. It reveals God's justice. It reveals things about his holy character. But it is not a path to salvation. And so the gospel is God's good news that he came and stood in our place and um, gave his life because we could not meet the demands of the law. And so that grace is applied to us when we put our faith and hope in Jesus Christ. So the gospel is God's good news. That's literally what it means of God coming down in human flesh um, being born of the Virgin and displaying the works of the kingdom and then going to the cross and being buried and ra- being raised on the third day. This is the gospel. And this is how I have forgiveness of my sins because I fall far short of God's laws. Now, the law, another purpose of the law is that it shows me how to love. So, It's very important for us as Christians to understand the difference between law and gospel. Um, And I just want to encourage you to to study the scriptures on these matters. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 gives a nice definition of the gospel. Um, And when we talk about the two great commandments, love God, love neighbor, uh, that's a summary of the Ten Commandments, which is a summary of the rest of the commandments of the moral law aspects of them. But that tells us how to live. As Christians. All right. Uh, yes, you're right. The Bible does say that God is love. It also says that he is holy and he, he is, is he is just and he's all knowing. He's all powerful. It says many things. Um, and um, it's interesting to notice, Angie, that holiness is the only attribute of God that goes what I call to the third power. It's holy, holy, holy. Um, nowhere in scripture are we told love, love, love. <laughs> um, the When, when, Isaiah goes into the throne room. He is immediately grasped by the holiness of God. And that is um, kind of an important thing to understand that his love and his justice and all of these attributes um, and his holiness all have to fit together. So we don't want to emphasize one over the other. And it's time for us to go, but I do want, I will highlight your, your last um, comment about Zechariah um, 7, 8 to 14. Awesome. Um, the, no. we, I, I can just, I'm just going to talk about it. One of the things that we have to understand in looking at this, this passage is that the Lord is telling them 
It's, it's giving them a, a command, but he's not telling them what goes into that command because he are because they already know they had already walked with him. But as as us reading it in this day and age, completely separate from their their understanding um, or their like cultural experience, we have to go back into the even deeper into the Old Testament, into the law to understand what's being said. So for example, I'll just read one verse and then you guys can go through it. Zechariah 7, 8 to 14 is um, what's on the screen. And this is a, this is a good, I'm glad you put this on here and, and you made this comment because this is a good teaching tool for all of us. In verse nine, it says, this is what the Lord of armies has said. Dispense true justice and practice kindness and compassion to each his brother. Okay. All right. So just taking that, that one verse, what does this mean? What is justice? How do I know how to dispense justice? How do I know what justice is? See, if we aren't looking back into the old laws, if I'm not looking back into God's moral laws and the things that he set forth for how I should participate with another person, I'll never be able to get here. I'll listen to culture and what they're telling me to do as justice. But culture has completely redefined justice. It's no longer justice as a biblical term. It's social or cultural justice that they define. So when I read even the first three words, dispense true justice, I have to think first, well, what is true justice? It would be like going to a pharmacist or a doctor and the doctor says, take penicillin. Well, what is it? What's in penicillin? Is that going to help me? Is it going? He could tell me to take arsenic. Like, is that I need to do some research and maybe that's just me. Like, I need to I need to research. What am I putting in my body? This dispense true justice. If I don't know what true justice is, I could get wrapped up in reproductive justice. Okay, that's still that's a justice issue. If you're listening to culture, reproductive justice, if you're not familiar, is abortion. If I get caught up in injustice, according to culture, I'll get caught up in economic justice, which is wealth distribution, which could also be considered things like reparations. So we need to marriage equality, marriage equality, which is L- LGBTQ issues. And, and, you know, all of those things, That's a justice issue. It, it, it's a justice issue. It's a justice issue, even um, for like married couples and and single people, because married couples make usually make more than single people. We need to understand what we're saying when we say things like justice, because otherwise you will advocate for sin. Don't don't get it mixed up. You will be advocating for something and calling something holy that God calls evil. And let's read the very next verse there in Zechariah, if, if Bob still has that. I'm in the NASB because I was the closest pull up. I just went on. So it says, and do do not oppress the widow or the orphan, the stranger or the poor, and do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. Again, we have to look at the definition. What does it mean to oppress someone? How does God define oppressing the widow? How does he define oppressing the fatherless or the foreigner, the poor? There are very specific laws in the Bible that address and, and, outline these things. So it would have been assumed by Zechariah and his audience that they knew those things. Yes, because they had walked with the Lord generation after generation. Philip on Facebook said something um, and I don't I'm not going to quote it 
Right. But he was he was mentioning that these things were generational, like they went generation to generation. Um, and that's true, especially in the Old Testament with the Israelites. These things were very generational. It was passed down one generation to the next. Um, but what is evil? See, in today's culture, Christianity is evil. This is why when when the Smithsonian released that whole whiteness thing and how, how not to participate in whiteness, there were so many Christian things on there. The idea of Christian privilege is considered evil. This is why in California, they want to get away with any form of Christianity in any school, basically, and have you do an Aztec chance. There is a lot of things that our current culture is calling good that the Lord calls evil. And there are a lot of things being proclaimed broadly and loudly that are seen as evil in the culture's eyes that God does not say are evil. So I'm glad you put this up because this is helpful. This is very, very helpful because if you can't give me a biblical definition of justice, I'm going to push back and say, you might not understand justice according to the old Testament laws. And with that, we are going to go because we've been on here a long time. Y'all, it's almost two hours. It's time for me to take a nap. All right. <laughs> it's nighttime. It's nighttime. Yes, it is. All right, my friends. We will see you next week. Thank you, Angie, for the extended yes. uh, conversation. That was very helpful. Thank you guys helpful. for hanging on and being in there with us. Yes. You guys, be always be up for the conversation. Ask questions, be up for the conversation, and don't be afraid to push back. We don't have to, if something is unbiblical or it doesn't align with scripture, we don't have to cower. We can push back because there is such a thing as objective truth. Yeah. Zachary so. says nap. Oh, I mean a nap till the morning. <laughs> All right. God All right. bless you guys. We'll see you next week. We'll see you. Thanks for listening to All The Things. Be sure to subscribe to our website at allthethingsshow.com and find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or wherever you stream your podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and the bell so you'll receive alerts when we post new shows. We'll see you next week.